Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is The Art of Awesome, episode number 200. This is what confuses 90% of the people when it comes to oxygen, trying to get more oxygen into the system. In fact, the more you try to get air in, the opposite effects, the less oxygen you will get to your muscles and your tissue. The harder you breathe, the less air you're going to get into your muscles and tissues. And most people go, that doesn't make any sense. But the problem is you, in that situation, you're hyperventilating. You're breathing hard mm. and you're blowing off tons of carbon dioxide. And when you're blowing off all of that CO2, carbon dioxide literally has to be present in the blood in enough volume for the oxygen from hemoglobin, from the oxygen to, de- to actually detach and go into the system. So, so for all that oxygen to get to all your muscles, vital organs, and all your tissue, you've got to have a presence of CO2 in enough levels. And if you're hyperventilating, you think of a panic attack, right? Someone's like, <gasps> and they're hyperventilating. What are they blowing? They're blowing off all that CO2. They give you a paper bag. And that's why. Yeah, exactly. They give you <laughs> a paper bag cool. because you're rebreathing CO2. That's all you're actually doing. Is- that's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to the Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. My goal is to share with you stories, knowledge, and inspiration as we continue on the journey together, searching for that secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Art of Awesome podcast. I am your host, Nick Troutman, and this is the show where we search for that secret sauce to success and the difference between the average and the awesome. Today is Monday, so we've got another deep dive, but today we don't have an interview. We have many different interviews as we're going to do a deep dive into the past 100 episodes, being that it's episode 200, and I'm going to share some of my favorite moments for the last 100 episodes and some of the secrets to success that I have uh, found scattered through all of these episodes. So whether you're looking to excel in mindset, in athletics, in um psychology and spirituality. I think you guys are going to like some of the tips and tricks found here. And let's wait no longer and dive right into it. Here we go. First off, we are going to listen to Robin Sharma as he shares some insight onto uncovering the golden Buddha within each and every one of us. Beginning of the everyday hero manifesto, Nick, there's that golden buddha metaphor you know many years ago in thailand there was this golden buddha and it, and it was like this priceless object that everyone revered and then it became clear that invaders were going to come into the country so the monks and all the people who beheld this incredible object this towering golden buddha buddha made of gold they said let's cover it with layer and layer and layer of soil so no one could see it and they did it and the invaders came in and they, they just saw a mountain of mud. And then many years later, a monk was walking by and he saw a little glimmer of gold from this mountain of mud. And they started digging layer upon layer and each layer they moved through, more and more gold started to appear until eventually there was this absolutely priceless golden Buddha. I think that's an incredible 
metaphor for every human being on the planet today. We were born into genius. We are taught to disbelieve ourselves. We are taught not to play at mastery. We're taught not to be creative. We're taught not to trying to pursue our own personal mountaintop. And that's the value of personal mastery work and the protocols I talk about in the Everyday Hero Manifesto, because you literally start to move through layers every day, steadily. And each time you move through the layers, you remember who you are beyond the ego, which is it, human beings are incredible. We forgot our incredibleness. Next up, we have Arjuna Ashaya who shares how to chase for more while finding enough. For me as an athlete, uh, and, and, and maybe you might relate to this or not, I feel like you're, you're several layers above, above where I am trying to achieve to in this like spiritual mindset and, and just uh, contentness with life. But um, as an athlete, I'm, I'm always trying to achieve like what I would deem, you know, peak physical and mental, you know, um, whether it be health or just kind of like a peak state. Right. Um, and, and part of being in that peak state, especially as for both competing and, and, and even like maybe you dealt with this, I think you kind of told me a little bit in our last interview as, as a monk, um, or maybe it was in one of your books that I read it in. Um, but you're, you're almost like you're trying to get to this level that may or may not exist, but, but either way, you're not necessarily living in the moment at the same point. Like, do you, so how do I try to become the best athlete that I can, whether it be through, you know, exercising more or eating healthier or training harder, but at the same point, be content with the moment that I'm, that I'm living and, and, and trying to just really take part of that. Does, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, and and people get so confused because they think having a healthy ambition is the opposite of contentment, <laughs> and so they go, "Well, I have to pick one." And I'm saying, "No, you you kind of want to have both." And for me, any kind of contentment really allows you to let now be enough, and in that enoughness, you're you're solely focused on what's right here. When you're solely focused on right here, you can, you can dig a lot, lot deeper than when your mind is scattered everywhere else. Um, I, I keep thinking that I'm, I'm such, even though my skills are worse now as a kayaker, I'm better mentally because I'm more present. When my skills were better, I was still, I was worried and scared and I've got to make that third, you know, I was already four moves into the rapid and I was sitting in the eddy. <laughs> And now, you know, do I prepare and plan and, and check it out? Yeah, I do. But then it's like, okay, I know what to do. And then I got to let it happen. And I, and I think that's the, the thing for athletes or, or anyone is, is preparing, but then letting it happen. Um, the more you focus in this present moment, if the more you make the most of this, the more you can truly dig into a deeper experience than than what your mind can give you. And, and I think we've all experienced that in terms of fear, but in terms of overthinking, in terms of just gripping too much, uh, being too far in the future, too worried about the consequences, too worried about your opposition, perhaps. Um, and that gets in the way of all of the experience. <laughs> um, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
No, I hundred percent uh, know what you're talking about, and 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 I think in, in the book you kind of reference like trying to be instead of just trying to do, and and I think if I'm correct, I think that's kind of what we're referencing here, and I find that a lot uh, in in life that that I'm trying to balance that, but but kayaking for me for some reason is one of the the. I don't know if it would be the few experiences, but definitely one of the most prevalent experiences where I'm able to be instead of just do or, or try to do. And, and I think that's because in kayaking and, and like what you mentioned, when you peel out of the eddy, so I can be in the eddy and I can be planning out all the different lines or I could be on shore scouting out all the different moves that I've got to make. But once I peel out of the eddy and, and I'm in the flow now, I... I'm way more likely to tap into that flow state and just kind of that in the moment um, thinking and, and reacting and being because um, I just I have to react with whatever the river's throwing at me. I, I might have all these plans, but they might, you know, fully be go astray. Do you know what I mean? And you just kind of have to deal with it. And and for me, that's always been one of the reasons that that I've always been very much drawn to kayaking is because is it, it like forces you into these, into these experiences and into these moments of life where, where there is no, I don't don't know if I'd say planning because I do plan. I plan the run and I plan the rapid and, and scouting and all that stuff. But, but it forces me into this moment where I have to react and I have to just force myself into these quick decision-making, um, just moments and yeah it's 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 pretty unique and there's few things like it i i mean i think uh talking with a lot of different you know athletes and and stuff like that i think anything with speed is probably pretty similar like whether you're driving like a super fast race car or whether you're you know bombing down a mountain on skis or something like that you're kind of in this moment of reacting um but yeah i kayaking kind of brings that to me and and i think it I think a lot of people, especially within the sport of kayaking, would, would kind of say the same thing where maybe we always can't all put the same words to it, but it it's this moment of Zen where you feel like you're in that moment reacting and truly being instead of kind of like planning and thinking. Like again, talking about like the flow state, I I like I love the whole concept of the flow state and 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 I've researched and, and interviewed a lot of people about that as well. And for me, kayaking, because you're in that like being mindset, um, it's almost like tapping more into the subconscious mind instead of the into the conscious mind because I'm not like I'm not processing everything that's coming and, and more just kind of reacting. Um, have you figured out a way um, as the wise monk that you are, have you figured out a way how to kind of tap into that a little bit more off of the river? Uh, and maybe in the moments where I'm not kind of in kayaking, because because it's it's fairly easy for me to do that in kayaking, but I'd love to be able to do that a little bit more in everything in life. Yeah, well, exactly, and that was the really the reason that I became <laughs> finally a monk was because I wanted those experiences off the river. <laughs> I I could. I could be in nature and in these wild places and, and get the sense of what it was like to truly connect with the moment, with the forces of nature in that moment and, 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 re- and react, like purely respond and, re- and get out of my head. And 
I wanted that more in life because I saw <laughs> saw how I could plan life, but constantly there was the unexpected boil line that <laughs> you know it was just that the current that pushes you off that you just didn't see or didn't expect or it was just a random blot in life and that's why yeah that's why I became a monk really and that was through practice increasingly of meditation and, and for me meditation is all about absorbing yourself in the present moment the simple practice and, and habit forming of of getting out of your head uh, into that sense of and being right here, right now. So, yeah, that's, that's what I found. That's what I think is crucial. You came out with this new book um, called Chasing More and Finding Enough. And um, like I just, uh, I, I was talking to you before we pressed record, and this book is just phenomenal, honestly. It's so relatable, and, and I feel like you kind of wrote the book about me. Um, and I just, yeah, the, the whole book was just a, a combination of the fact that it's like just super relatable, and then the fact that you have these like kayaking tidbits in there too. Just, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is totally like my life. And, and yeah, so. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't, awesome. yeah, I couldn't put the book down. It's very cool. So definitely highly recommend everybody to check that out. Um, and uh, if you guys are on my Christmas list, I'll probably be sending you one. But um, <laughs> but in the book, you, thank you, you. Awesome. Well, thank you for writing it because I, I truly did get a ton of value out of it. Um, but in the book, you talk a lot about the donut life, which which we kind of talked about in our last interview a little bit. Um, but for the audience that maybe didn't hear the previous interview, can you kind of just give us a brief outline of what the donut life is? Yeah, it's it's like when you scramble, well, not even scramble, but you get busy getting everything that you think you want. Um, you, you, you line all your ducks up, you get the life, the experiences, the possessions, the job, the 2.4 dogs and, <laughs> and and I had that I, I had in my life looking exactly the way that I wanted to I could I was kayaking all summer snowboarding all winter and yet um, living in a, a phenomenally beautiful even now when I look at the photos they take my breath away this beautiful beautiful place in New Zealand and yet I was so confused because I wasn't feeling like fulfilled or content or satisfied or any of these things that I thought I should be. Or I thought that my culture had said that you would, that this is success. This is outward success. You, that will make you happy. And I found that it made me the opposite of happy, just <laughs> more and more confused. Cause I was like, I have all this stuff. I have my life exactly ticked off and yet I feel like I'm empty. So I came up with the the donut life with a big whopping hole in the middle. <laughs> so. Yeah, every time I hear of that concept, uh, again, it's it's just um, one. I think it's very applicable to so many people out there, and and definitely something that I've felt <clears throat> uh, throughout my life as well. Where you you have these like. I don't know if it's what society says you're supposed to have, or whether it's just dreams and desires and all these things, and so many times I've like checked them off and then I'm like, well, now what? Like, um, in the book as well, you talk about the, like, I'll be happy when mentality, uh, when it's like when my team wins or when I lose the weight, um, or when I finish the project. And, um, and I couldn't agree with more of it because 
you have that idea, but the, the satisfaction doesn't last. It's, it's like, it might last, you know, for a day or a moment or, you know, a week if it's like a huge project. Um, but then there's always like, you're followed with the what's next. And, and I found this very much so when I won the world championships where it was such a big goal of mine. And then I achieved it and I'm like super proud. And I remember like the the next day, like after winning the world championships, like that day, just like full on living the high, the next day being like just super proud and stoked. And then by day two, this is so like day two after winning and being like, huh, now what? Like nothing has changed. It's like when you have a birthday and, and everybody's like, oh, now that you turn 20 or now that you turn 30 or whatever it is, how different is life? And you're like, well, it's kind of the same as it was yesterday. Um, so yeah, how do you kind of deal with that um, that kind of what's next mentality and, and how there's always kind of like another mountain after the mountain that you have climbed? Yeah. Well, that's the nature of more <laughs> is that, is it, it just keeps going and going. Sorry. I'm, I might've missed the first part of your question, but you, it, I, I, everybody I talk to is the same. And um, especially those who are really high achievers or very critical of themselves, they'll win or they'll complete, but they didn't win enough right. <laughs> or they didn't complete enough. You know, they, they felt like if it's a sporting event, their opposition just fell over or, um, do you know, they didn't, even though they got what they wanted, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's always more. And that's, and, and, and if you set your life up right, that's the way it's going to be, do you know, constant, what's your next challenge? What's your next point of growth? How can you learn more? And I think that's a wonderful aspect, but it's only half of life. So, right. How do you deal with, how do you deal with, um, that desire for that and not even, I don't know if desire is the right word, but just um, like chasing that enough and that more while also still just kind of being present with what you've got. And, and it's, for me, it's this like very much like yin and yang where it's like almost like cyclical where I'll go through these like ups and downs um, where I'll like, I'll chase something, I'll, I'll achieve it. And then I just kind of start back at the, at the start where it's like, okay, well now that I've, I've, you know, ticked off that goal. What's next? What's the next goal? Cause there's, cause there always is like, I, I feel like there always is another mountain, no matter what, however big the mountain is that you're climbing, you get to the, to the peak, you get to the top of the mountain and then there's just always another mountain. And, and it's like forever. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so trying to like balance that being content with what I've got, but still chasing more and kind of like reaching for that potential too. Well, I, I think, in, you know, in sports psychology, they, they get near it when they talk about um, a goal orientation versus a process orientation. And, and when you're so focused on the goal, it's usually an external thing like winning a medal or um, a certain amount of salary or a bonus. Um, there's some sort of external marker of your success. And, and that's, I think that's perhaps important to kind of have a, a loose idea that that would be great that would be nice but it's the the moment by moment process that takes you there and for me the moment by moment process comes back again to the moment it's this is all we truly have to live and we're so often in the future with that whole 
oh, when I get there, then I'll feel a certain way about myself that will prove something to the world or to my parents or to, <laughs> to my, that primary school teacher. You know, we, we're trying to prove our existence by what we do, what we achieve, what we get, what we, what we have. And the present only time you can actually work towards something, it's the only moment that life is. But it's also the only moment where you can infuse it with quality. And if you're so focused on a future moment, you can't bring any quality to now. You can't bring any presence or awareness to this. And as John Lennon said, life happens. Life is what happens when we're busy making other plans. <laughs> life is what happens when we're busy striving towards some future goal. And yeah. uh, we, we lose the quality, I think, is the, the, the essence uh, of of finding that balance is, is knowing that I can only climb a mountain by taking one step. And that one step is right here, right now. I love that. I, I love bringing it back to like that here and now and, and realizing that you're totally correct that, that we, life only happens in the, in the moment. I mean, we can, we can project into the future or, or we can reminisce on the past, but it is the moment that we're living in that that's where life is that's where you're living it. Do you know what I mean? You, you can't be living in the past or in the future. It's like in the now. Up next, we have Coach Evan Burke sharing some of his insight into achieving our highest level with using character as one of the indicators for peak performance. Uh, you know, it was really about performing at your highest level. Uh, and obviously continuing to push and redefine what your highest level is, uh, which is specific to what you just mentioned. And, and so like, I was really kind of looking back at, okay, who are the elite teams and who are the elite performers and what do they have in common? Okay. They all have talent, but when you're at the highest levels, the difference in talent is minuscule. Oh, maybe this guy's faster or maybe this guy's hands are bigger, whatever. But like, does that determine, does that determine success? Like you can have the talent to make it up to those levels, but the people that have success, if you really start to reverse engineer it, like in my book, I kind of break it down into like three sections. So like the first filter when you're evaluating people is like, they have to have talent. They have to be able to do the job. They have to be able to like compete in the NFL or whatever environment they're going into. So like everybody passes the first filter is talented enough to whatever, be on a college team, be it, be in the NFL or be considered to be in the NFL. Okay. And like, there's different levels. You might be the most talented person on the planet, but be a low character individual, right? Like you might be a, a terrible person or a terrible teammate or something. There's a lot of teams that they don't care. Like, I think that talent wins out regardless. Hmm. And like, we're just going to accumulate talent. And I talk in the book about there's a difference between accumulating talent and building a team. Mm -hmm. Like you're not trying to pick the best players. You're trying to pick the right players. And we can look through all of the highest levels of any competitive sport or any competitive industry. And like the stories are all the same. Oh, this person kept getting knocked down, but like they kept getting back up. And guess what? Like they were better the next year. Uh, and like, the stories are also the same for the people that are extremely talented that don't possess these traits. 
oh, if they could have just figured it out, they couldn't keep the train on the tracks. Well, yeah. And like, if you had really been critical of like what you were seeing, this is a problem that I saw in my own coaching career is like a lot of coaches start with the end in mind. Nick is the most talented person at this position. And oh my God, he's so talented. Oh yeah, coach, but he doesn't really fit our system. Oh, but this guy, he's a, he's a once in a generation talent. Okay. Like, but his, his teammates don't high five him when he comes off the field. Should we be concerned? Oh, they're just, you know, uh, there's been issues at that school and the coach creates a lot of jealousy and like, it's going to be fine when he gets here. It's never fine when they get there. It, like the story is going to tell you what's going to happen. Right. Um, you know, past performance is going to predict future success or lack of success. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people think that that means, oh, well, they were successful in this arena or they, they had a lot of stats or, or success. So that's going to translate here. That's not really what I'm talking about. It's like if they're a bad teammate in high school, like a lot of people's talent is so vastly superior at lower levels that they can overcome all sorts of deficiencies. But the higher up you go, the more competitive the industry is, the talent gap shrinks to almost nothing. To even like the Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady's of football and like the scrub players that are barely hanging onto a team, like those guys are all super talented. If you were not to watch the quarterback throw and you just saw the ball coming out from behind a door, you would just be like, oh my God, I can't tell who, you know, I can't tell which, which balls from Tom Brady and which ones from, you know, scrub player B over here. Uh, and so like what determines the success of these people? And it all goes back to like these core traits that you can find. Uh, and some possess all three of these things, right? Like a, a person like Tom Brady has an immense love and importance for the game of football. Uh, he's extremely competitive. Like these things to me fall under heart. Uh, he also has this ability. Like a lot of people look at Tom Brady now and they're like, oh, he's an MVP. He's the greatest player ever. He's married to a supermodel. He's like, he's the most talented player ever. Um, and uh, I know you said, you said you're 33. Yeah. So, so I'm 39. So I, I can actually remember Tom Brady in college and, and Tom Brady was not that talented in terms of NFL quarterbacks. Uh, he had to work his way up from a fourth string quarterback just to make the team. And then think about what it takes Drew Bledsoe, uh, and, and I apologize for all the non-football fans, but, but bear with me here. Drew Bledsoe at, at the year 2000 was one of the best players in, in the game of football. He was the prototypical quarterback, 6'6", 250, you know, golden arm. Uh, and he was the highest paid player at the time in the history of the NFL. And backup Tom Brady was able to become the starter in New England. And obviously, you know, we're aware of what's happened over the last 20 years. Well, like if you don't acknowledge that aspect of Tom Brady's career, of him developing as a backup and showing up every day, uh, I don't want to compare myself to Tom Brady. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I think like, you know, how was I able to access those, those rooms that are extremely difficult to get in? It was like, I had a similar vision, you know, Tom Brady talks about it. He's like, Oh, I didn't care that Drew Bledsoe was the highest paid player in the league. I didn't care that he was the franchise quarterback. Like I knew that I was going to become this great player. 
Um, and I think the greats have this kind of mentality of like, oh yeah, I don't care that all these guys have, you know, dads that are hooking them up with jobs. I don't care that all these players like played for all these coaches and could just like text a coach and get a job. Like I'm going to write 450 handwritten letters to just see where I can have a conversation with anybody in the NFL so that I can just like find my crack in, in, in the wall and like force my way through. In this next point, we've got Adam Spillman who shares his experience of using ice baths and breath work to recover from stage three cancer. I started using ice baths and breath work and I had already been using this stuff, but I really started to like, when I got into the ice bath, I really started to pay attention to my psyche and where my headspace was going when I was in the ice bath. And, um, that's where I really started to recalibrate my mind and recalibrate like how I handle stress. And what I've learned from this for me in particular is, is there is no like, there's no stress for cancer. There's no particular stress for kayaking. There's no particular stress for paying bills. It's all the same stress. It's all the same response inside of you. And it goes for anxiety. It goes for all that stuff. And when you get into the ice, there's all these crazy healing benefits for the ice. But what's also going on is you're creating that same response inside of yourself. It's like, your body does not want to be here. You're getting the same stress as like, I can't pay my bill this week. Um, you're getting the same stress as my boss is stressing me out right now. Work is stressing me out. Like I just feel overwhelmed, but you're in a controlled environment. So you get to learn how to breathe. You get to learn how to breathe through that stress. You get to learn how to calm yourself down. And so basically here, we've got Nick Gnosis from Apex Mind Coaching, a hypnotist explaining how the subconscious mind works in creating the realities that we want in life. They'd like to just kind of explain how the subconscious works. It's very abstract, right? Like, what does that even mean? What does that, what does that look like? When you picture subconscious, what do you see? It's, it's not super concrete. So let's dial it in a little bit. So an analogy might be helpful. You, you are about five, 10% conscious in your decision-making 90, 95% unconscious. So if I was going to say, you know, could you think of, of somebody whose judgment you trust a lot, somebody who you think is very shrewd and, and who makes good decisions, I'm sure you could. But then if I was to ask you, would you let this person make 95% of the decisions in your life? Then you'd say probably not, but that's what's happening here. So the reason first and foremost that we do this is we have to, we have so many things we have to keep track of. Imagine that you want to go drive your car, compare the first time that you learned to drive a car versus the, uh, you know, after doing a thousand times. So you manually unlock the door, pull the door handle, sit in, close the door, put the keys in the ignition, turn, put the seatbelt, change the gear, but you, you don't have the mental capacity of the bandwidth to keep doing that right? You have to automate. You can't manually blink your eyes and breathe for your whole life. So we, we have to automate through the subconscious. The problem is that we start to form patterns and that there's a lot of patterns and belief system that are baked in there from sometimes decades ago that are beliefs about ourselves, 
that are still running the show about what's possible and what's not possible. So the analogy that I'll give you is this. Imagine that you are an actor. You are the greatest actor of all time. You can do comedy, romance, drama, action, anything. And you are given a script. This is your life script. And it says who you are, how you behave, and what you do and don't do, how your character talks, what they believe, this, this detailed character profile. And we act out our character every single day, unconsciously. So if you've seen the first four seasons of Breaking Bad, but you haven't seen the fifth, well, you have an idea of how the character Walter White behaves in the first four seasons. So you don't suddenly expect him to become this nice cuddly guy in season five, right? There's, there's a circle of expectations of what's possible there. So, so you're acting this out constantly, whoever you believe that you are in your subconscious. Um, most of the behavior that you do today was decided last night while you were asleep. So we, we're going in these predictive cycles overnight. So then the question is, well, how do you change this? To your point, what do you start doing to change this? So I'd say here's the, the belief change that I want people to take is the good news is you're not only the actor, you're also the director. And you can rewrite the script every single day. So you get a sense of who this character is. And based on your goal, the character that you're at right now doesn't do that goal. Something has to change. What is it? So to get from point A to point B, so let's use income as, as an example. If someone wants to double their income. Well, when you look at the version of you that has twice the income, what is different about him or her? What is different? Do they get up at a different time? Are they more assertive? Do they charge more money? Do they have more clients, fewer clients, different job? What, what's different about it? And it might just be the way they think or their belief system. So now that you have kind of the character that's going to be in the future, imagine that this is the next season of this show, let's say, or it's the sequel to this movie and you're going to have this new character. So you start rewriting it. And to bring this back to more of the concrete day-to-day -day tasks, what does this look like? I could give you a few methods. Number one would be visualization. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. So there's a part of us that cannot discern between what is vividly imagined and what is real. So those people who make a regular practice of visualizing, say five minutes a day for 30 days, you will see improvements. So never mind the details of how you get there. And I, I'm not sure exactly what would be the goals in, you know, if you're doing uh, kayaking or adventure sports, but let's say I want to go rock climbing and like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of, like actually doing the rock climbing in, in this place. And I've only done it indoor gyms. So it's kind of scary, right? So maybe I visualize myself at the top of that, that um, peak or, or I see myself doing it fearless, breathing, moving along, making it more vivid and hearing the sounds of the tool. I'm, I'm feeling the sun on me. I'm getting more vivid, more vivid, more vivid each time. It's like you're there. And what happens now is those predictive cycles that I mentioned while you're sleeping is now including those visualizations as, hey, maybe the character does this now. He seems to be spending an awful lot of time visualizing this outcome. I know it's important. Now it gets thrown in there. And now the subconscious can't tell the difference between who you've been all this time and who you're visualizing. And you're putting such importance and such faith in that, in that vision that starts to become a reality that all of a sudden 
your movements, your words, your thoughts, your language on a day-to-day basis are now different for having visualized. Here is a piece of advice that Megan from White Pine Yoga up in the Ottawa Valley shares with us about yoga and how sometimes yoga isn't just a fact of being flexible within the body, but it also helps us be more flexible within the mind. What what do you t- say to people that are like intimidated by yoga or by the term or that they think it's all like, you know, hippy dippy, you know, voodoo, whatever, where they're just like, oh, I'm not doing yoga. Because I know a lot of these people and, and I've had a lot of these people talk to me before. They're like, yeah, I'm not doing yoga. Like, you know, that's all like froofy or whatever. And I'm just like, do you trust me? You need to try yoga. Like one for flexibility and two for this just like mental clarity. Like I think everybody should do it. Uh, and I know that I need to do it more often, which is, you know, why I'm kind of getting back into it on a heavy way. But uh, what what what's your answer or like your way to encourage people to at least try it for those that maybe, you know, are, are against it or have never tried it and just, I don't know, have weird thoughts about the whole idea of it? Okay, this is such like a great question. Um, so I do think that there is like some Froofy? Is that the word you used? Froofy maybe, yoga out there? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. I love it. I know exactly what you mean. Um, so kind of there's different, like each teacher is going to bring like their own flavor and like what they believe um, to be true for them about yoga. And for us here at the studio, you know, we want a safe place for like people to like grow and explore and a lot of our stuff kind of is anatomy driven about how you actually like move your body. So I feel like for like athletes and other people who are more body conscious that that will really like speak to them. Teachers who are aware of their body, the proprioception about how like they're moving through space, quotation marks, um, kind of like changes your experience And when you have these moments where there's kind of like less distractions in class, then you can kind of move more into like having maybe, you know, a magical experience, if you will, that doesn't have to be like froofy, but you're just kind of like, okay, like I feel like I'm coming back home to myself and kind of like peeling back those layers of stories that we tell ourselves that maybe, you know, were true at one time, but aren't true anymore. We do have a lot of people that are like, I'm not flexible enough to do yoga, but you don't have to be flexible to do yoga. You don't have to be anything to do yoga. You just need a body and you need to be able to breathe and you just have to be open. So maybe the flexibility needs to be more in the mind than it does in the body for you to come and practice. This is one of my favorite interviews with Jerry Lynch, the author of Thinking Body, Dancing Mind. Again, really diving into not just the physical side of sports, but more on the mental and psychological side of sports. Meditation is the mamba mentality. Mm-hmm. If you want to have the mamba mentality, you, you need to meditate. Not because Kobe meditated, but because what meditation does is it helps you to focus, it helps you to clear your mind, it helps you to be the better version of yourself. And that's the Mamba mentality. And that's an ingredient that Kobe identified as something essentially 
absolute that we must adapt to our daily. Now, whether you're a leader, a, an athlete, a father, which you are, by the way, right? Yeah, father you too. Two wonderful, great little spirits running oh, around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk about a spiritual journey and, and learning about yourself, right? Oh, seriously. Uh, all right. So uh, this whole thing, this whole idea of, of meditation and the mama mentality to be a better version of yourself. And also, uh, as I say in the book, in that chapter about uh, Kobe, uh, that he was not afraid of failure. Right. And if you're not afraid of failure, what are you going to do? You're going to take risks. You're going to put yourself out on the edge. You know, you're going you're gonna to make that run in the river. You know, if you're not afraid of fail, if you're afraid of failing, you're going to be tight, tense, and tentative. You're going to be like looking at ways that, God, this could go wrong. What if I hit this rock? What if, you know, blah, 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 as opposed to the Mamba mentality, which is, no, I can't fail. And the reason he can't fail is because of the Buddha. And the Buddha says, all of your, all of your failure is a wonderful opportunity to learn so that you elevate your game. So if he would miss a, uh, a, a defensive assignment or, or miss a shot at a certain point. Uh, it, it was okay. I mean, I mean, he'd rather make it, he'd rather be the better defender, but the Mamba mentality is you have compassion for yourself. And so many athletes, the, one of the, um, one of the virtues, uh, that, that are really lacking is self-compassion. You know, if I have a room of 3000 athletes, 2,999 of them are going to lack self-compassion. And where do we get that from? We get that through the meditation process, the Mamba mentality, you know, to, to be kind to yourself, to not beat yourself up. You know, like, like if you're, if one of your children make a mistake, I, you know, if they're on the water, which I, I'm almost certain that you take them out on the water, right? You probably take them skiing or whatever you do. (laughs) If they fall down or they make a mistake, you don't go over there and beat them in the head and, and say, what's wrong with you? And I told you how to do it. You go over and you pick them up and you pull, put them in your arms and you hug them and you say, good job, big guy, way to go, you know, and, and come on, let's try it again. Let's get back in. I know you can do it. Yeah. That's what we need to say to ourselves because there's this little child inside every one of us that's screaming out for that love. And that love is self-compassion. And that's what the mama mentality is. Imagine that. Will Richardson shares his advice on using data to help us collect the information that we need to live our best, healthiest lifestyle. I've got all of these devices around. I'm a data junkie. Um, And that helps a lot being a data junkie. Um, But they have different numbers. So my whoop tells me I'll burn, I burn, and they're they're not vastly off, like, but the whoop usually tells me I burn more or less than a thousand, or sorry, 200 calories different than what the Garmin tells me. So it's, they're not super accurate. These things are a great, like larger gauge of your day, but don't take them as gospel. So if your Fitbit tells you that you're burning 2000 calories a day, that does not necessarily mean you should eat 2000 calories a day. The only way to do it is long-term data. And so what I do, so what we do as nutrition coaches and what I do as a nutrition coach anyway, is I get you to monitor exactly what you're eating every day. I, I, and you do that through macro measurement. It's the best way to do it. It's the most accurate. And it allows me to work certain things stronger than others. Um, so I can, if I, if 
for athletes in particular, your protein intake is super important because the, you certain proteins your body can't make and you need it. You need those certain proteins for recovery, for muscle recovery. So you can continue to uh, be an athlete at the highest level. Um, so athletes like uh, Dane and you and Emily all need to have a relatively high protein intake because you're pushing your body to that max every day. Um, as a runner, it's the same thing. Um, and then you need a certain amount of carbohydrates. So we've got, we'll talk about the, um, current trend of calling carbohydrates evil later, but, um, <laughs> carbohydrates are necessary energy and they're the easiest thing for your body to access as far as energy is concerned. So an athlete needs a certain amount of, of carbohydrate caloric energy per day. And finally fats, um, women in particular need a certain amount of fats per day, um, for hormonal, hormonal generation and um, balance men do as well. It's a little bit less than what women need per day. So that needs to be in there too. So we look at macros and then you monitor it consistently for like three months. And once you've seen what happens over the course of three months, when we, you know, when we push it up a little bit, do you gain weight? When we push it down a little bit, do you lose weight? And we eventually find these tipping points and that tipping point changes remember, cause now you're losing weight, your mm -hmm. muscles are starting to adapt. You, maybe you're working out more, whatever we find these tipping points and that tipping point changes over time, but that's the only way to do it. So, um, the app that I get most of my clients to use is my fitness pal. It's been around for a long, long time. It's relatively inexpensive. You can use it for free. Um, and it has a database that allows you to just scan a UPC code and gives you the, the, the breakdown of calories, or you can do it by macros, which is what I do, but that's not necessarily the best way for other people. However, you can monitor your intake. That's where the data starts to build up. And then you build up that, that book of data and you look over the trends over time. Um, so what's your, what, where was your weight and you started? How much did you eat per day? Did that weight go down or up? Well, if it goes up, then you're eating too much. And if it goes down, you're eating too little or, or you're getting the result you want, but at any rate, and then you adjust and adapt and keep figuring it out. And, and again, because it changes, that's a changing scale, but that's the easiest way to go. That's my tip is first and foremost, learn how to monitor what you're eating and do it fastidiously by weight, by how much you're, you know, how much you're consuming per day. That's the only way to get a true measure of that number. The good news is you really don't have to do it forever. Once you figure out what it is your body needs in a day, you're going to start building up sort of a, a encyclopedic knowledge of, well, this is what I should eat. Um, I'm at the point now where I can go for two or three months without having to do any monitoring whatsoever. I usually return to it after about three or four months and do a few weeks just to see if I've lost perspective on a few things. And generally I have, usually it has to do with carbohydrate intake. I'm like, Oh, probably I've been eating a few too many crackers on Sunday. Um, but then again, I, but, but I also, you know, there's reasons I go through that and there's no need for most, most people don't need super, super strict diets. Most people just need to learn how to monitor their intake a little bit better. Hmm. That makes perfect sense. So if, if my fitness pal is the app, is that, is that right? So my yep. fitness pal is a great app. What of all the devices that you've used, is there any that you would advise more than another, like Fitbit, Whoop, Garmin, any of those things? Uh, Are they all I mean, about the same? I think they all do the same job 
equally unwell, if that makes sense. That, <laughs> I, I like Whoop because it focuses on recovery and recovery is really important to me. And I think recovery is not important enough to most young athletes in particular. Um, it's more, it gets more important as you get older because you feel unrecovered a lot stronger than you do as a, as a youth in your twenties, you can go jump off of mountains and mountain climb for five days straight, drink beers every night and get three hours of sleep and probably still pound it tomorrow and be all right. In your thirties and forties and fifties, that starts to dwindle drastically. And all of a sudden one doing that for one day just beats you up to the point where you uh, haven't recovered. Right. And you suddenly start, you know, getting negative achievements and whoop does a very good job of refocusing your point of view on that. It does an okay job as far as caloric tracking, but as far as recovery is concerned, it does a better job, which is why I recommend that as far as a, as, as far as a metric tracker is concerned. And the whoop also tracks your, your sleep cycles and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Do all the which other ones all do that too? Yeah. Uh, they all do to a certain degree, but most of them don't put it into that completely focused recovery, like balance. How did you recover yesterday? And what's really interesting if you, once you've worn whoop for a long time, or once you've become sort of a whoop person mm -hmm. is you learn very quickly. You ever wonder about those days you've gone through this, Nick, you're an athlete. You ever wonder why sometimes you're just not killing it? Yeah. Like you're like, Oh man, like today I just sucked. Like I couldn't get, <laughs> couldn't run fast enough. Once you've gone been on whoop for a while, you realize really quickly, ah, oh, it's because I didn't sleep well last night, or I had a couple of drinks yesterday, and that really affected my recovery. You see that, you know, yellow or red recovery line in, on your whoop, and you're like, oh, well, that's why. That's why I suck today. It was. It wasn't because I'm. I'm a terrible athlete. Most of the very variability in my in my athletic skill has to do with my recovery and how much effort I put into it the day before. And it's funny because it's 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 one of those like oh. Oh, oh, I should have changed. Ah, that's what I should have changed. Gotcha. Do you, do you find too, talking about, um, you know, how all calories aren't quite created equally is, is the protein a big part of that recovery too? Like if you don't get enough protein, are you finding that same kind of, uh, slow recovery or lack of recovery? Over long term, absolutely. I don't. I mean, I I'm pretty good about monitoring my protein intake. But over the long term, especially with people who have a chronically low protein intake, so um, people who have gone through vegetarian diets, for example, who have difficulty getting enough protein in their day, generally you'll see those people go through uh, muscle pain. Um, their recoveries get slower and slower and slower. So it takes them longer days, longer to recover. Um, and then, and they usually end up with problems like tendonitis and, um, and those type of things because, um, and if you, I mean, I, again, this is a gross generalization. Um, this may not happen to some people, but if you are going through this, sometimes check your protein intake, um, because what can happen if your protein is chronically low. So I'm talking like, you know, below 90 to 60 grams a day, somewhere in that range starts to be in the chronically low range. Um, what'll happen is, is you're in order to repair, you have to get those essential proteins from somewhere in your body. So it, it goes to the muscles in your body to get, that's where you store the protein. So same as you store fat as fat, you don't store protein as fat. You store protein as muscles and it's stored in the muscles. Again, gross generalization, please don't take this as scientific gospel, but imagine if you're trying to re rebuild a muscle that is damaged. Well, it's going to have to get the protein from somewhere. So it goes and reaches into other parts of the body to repair it. And 
doing that cyclically over long periods of time eventually starts to stop you from building up muscle and starts to create muscle issues because now you're chronically beating up that muscle every day. It's not fully healing because it doesn't quite have the nutrients it needs to, to rebuild itself properly. And you end up with muscle issues and, you know, different types of, of pain. So in most cases with an athlete who is complaining that they're not building enough muscle, for example, um, I mean, you and I had this conversation years ago about, um, cause you were working on trying to bulk up a little bit. And it was like, well, the first thing you got to do is look at your protein intake and make sure that you're eating more than you burn in a day because you burn a lot of calories in a day. If you don't have the combination of a decent amount of protein, so 120 grams to 200 grams plus a day, plus, which is a lot of protein, by the way, not recommended for people that have, you know, problems digesting proteins, but, you know, talk to your doctor first before you do anything along those lines. And then the second thing, making sure you have enough calories in a day, because if you're constantly in a deficiency, then you're never going to bulk up. That's part of the equation, right? Part of the math. Here, Susanna Kindred shares her three pillars into blending psychology into the mindset behind peak performance. So my framework is underpinning these three pillars that we see really change the game. Because once you're good at something or once you're good in your craft and you've got the skill there, it's no longer more technical skill that's going to really change and improve your game. A lot of the time what it's coming down to is the, the internal world, the mental mm -hmm. and the emotional game and what's between your ears that's going to kind of make the difference there and so this is kind of where i come down to of what were what are the three pillars what's the art of sustainable high performance or this risk of the outcome when i've got compassionate drive and this sense of self that's full and within myself i can just be there and there's absolutely no risk even if i do fail because i'm enough anyway and i can try for things anyway and i've done my best anyway and all humans have failed anyway. But the most important thing is I gave it my best go. And this is like, you know, part of the compassionate drive coming in. Here, Arno Ilgner shares the rock warrior's way with his advice on the flow state. Listeners know something about the flow state. And athletes uh, seek to get into that kind of a state because you get you can perform optimally there. Mm -hmm. And, and so uh, the traditional flow state that, uh, you know, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, you know, uh, coined and developed and was you, you kind of have a graph where you have challenge on one axis and you have, you know, ability on another. Mm -hmm. And so if you get the balance between your ability to deal with stress, let's say, and the level of the stress or the challenge, then you can uh, get into an optimal uh, state. You know, if you get too much stress that you can't process, then you fall out of that flow state. Mm -hmm. Or if you don't have enough stress based on your skill level, then you get you fall into boredom, back in your mm -hmm. comfort zone. So it's kind of a sweet spot. Uh, so that's that's the traditional way of understanding a flow state. But the conference that we were a part of is really looking more broadly, like can we like make uh, attain the flow state or something uh, resembling it in regular life, you know, or even recreational activities where we're not like really necessarily uh, looking to for performance. Uh, so uh, 
so when I when I look at that way of getting into the flow state, uh, the traditional way too, but uh, more broadly, in the context of the core tenets of the warrior's way material, then it really starts making sense on what we can do uh, with those to get better at those core tenets to get into a flow state more often. So, for example, uh, the the core central foundation of how we approach mental training has to do with attention. Mm-hmm. So, and in, in other words, the, the mental training goal that we teach is we need to do whatever we can do in practice so that we can get our attention focused more in the moment on whatever the current task is. You know, so more attention in the present moment, the more mentally powerful we'll be. Well, there's two basic ways of focusing attention. You know, so this is a really critical part of being able to achieve that mental training goal is like there's not just one way of doing it. There's two basic ways. One is what we're doing right now is like being able to be stopped and cognitively focus, well, focus attention in our mind to do cognitive thinking. So we can think about the past, uh, you know, past experiences, reflect on that flow conference or whatever. We can think about, you know, future performances or future goals. Like we can use our mind to focus attention there to direct it in certain ways to do critical cognitive thinking. But when we're engaged in activity, we focus attention differently. We focus it more somatically in the body, you know, around breathing, you know, proper posture, you know, relaxing unnecessary tensions, things like that, that uh, we have, the mind is more quiet. It's just observant. Uh, and letting, trusting the body to do what it needs to do. So that's the second core tenet is we need to understand where are we? Are we stopped somewhere where we need to think uh, critically about what we're getting ready to do? Or are we deciding and taking action to engage it? This is one of my favorites as Mike and Corey share some incredible advice on breath work. I began to, you know, I started to take notice, started to read books, started to change what I ate, got rid of sugar. I mean, I started just kind of going on my own journey and kept asking Corey, you know, hey, what do you think of this? What are you, what are you doing now? And he's always on the latest thing. He's always trying something new, like the whole quality thing we just talked about. But it was interesting because my health improved so much that then I became excited and fired up. And so then when he called and said, you know, I was at the GoPro Mountain Games and this this whole thing uh about mountain wellness came out. He goes, what do you think of it? And it was, a, it was, a, it was a no brainer for me. I got so excited. It's like a light went off for me. I was like, Oh my gosh, what? how can I be part of this? What do you want me to do? I mean, you know, so then we, we grew as a, I'm my kind of the media guy. I'm running the cameras and podcasts, whatever I can do to help. And, and we've been friends aside from all the stuff we do together. We've been friends throughout this. I mean, we, we were friends, really good friends through this whole 10 years. I mean, it's been amazing. Wow. That it truly is uh, an amazing story, and, and I'm so glad that I get to have both you guys on here together. But there's something else that you guys talk about in your course that I thought was really intriguing, and that was um, using mouth tape. And so, so my wife actually read a book um, that she has recommended I read as well. I think it's called Breath. Have you guys read that yes, book? James and Esther. Yep. Anyway, yeah, and they, they also talk about mouth tape a lot. And so she wears mouth tape um, yeah. when, when we go to sleep. And and I always I've always thought it was 
somewhat funny. She's uh, luckily she doesn't listen to my podcast very much. So, <laughs> um, but um, where I'm like, why don't you just keep your mouth shut and just breathe through your nose at night? Um, but I guess I guess the idea is that we. When we're asleep, sometimes we just innately or subconsciously breathe through our mouths either way or breathe both through the nose and the mouth. And so the mouth tape cuts that off where we only breathe through the nose. Do I have that right there? Yeah. Or fill me in on why we, why you guys are recommending mouth tape and, and the advantages of it. Well, it, it goes hand in hand with the, with your daytime breathing. So think about it. if you can get eight hours more of nose breathing at night with mouth tape, um, you're getting the benefits of nitric oxide, a higher carbon carb CO2 in the system, which is going to be better for your oxygen transfer. But I'll tell you one thing that happened to me uh, that was blew me away because I've been mouth taping for the last year. And, and this was the side effect of everything is putting the mouth tape on. I hadn't had a dream that I could recall in probably 20 years. I just thought, I thought I stopped dreaming. I think they say you'd ever really stop, but I don't remember them. When I started mouth taping, so nitric oxide, all this, all this extra oxygen is going to the brain while you're sleeping. So my dreams became so vivid in the first like six months, I fell out of the bed twice. <laughs> so crazy. But but you imagine that you, that your brain chemistry and could change so much that just putting mouth tape on could knock you out of your bed. But it also cured my snoring. I probably only snore. 10% of the time of compared to 90% of the time before the mouth tape. So it's known to help cure snoring or, or minimize it a lot. Now, if you're obese or, you, or your diet's really bad, that'll contribute. It, it, it won't be as easy. But uh, if you're reasonably healthy and you snore and your mouth is open, I've, I still mouth tape. But you could, your system, and Corey knows this, it will adapt. If, at some point, she won't have to wear mouth tape. And... Yeah, it's similar to what we talked about on our podcast, yep. Nick, when we were on the the, the subconscious, conscious. Like it, the more you can, you know, train the system to to maintain nasal breathing, even in sleep, um, it becomes habitual, and, and it never mm -hmm. like now. If I default to mouth breathing, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, whether I'm sleeping or I'm just in daily activity or in exercise. If like I have this immediate stress response. I'll wake up out of a sleep, my mouth's mm -hmm. dry. I'm like, what the heck happened? Exactly. Um, and I also yeah, want to, yeah. And, and I want to um, back up a little bit because it, it's really easy. You know, we can talk about nasal breathing and Mike and I have been doing, uh, uh, we've had a breathwork practice for 10 years and I can share my personal experience um, was not mouth taping. Mine was, I, I had trained with Mark at, with the SealFit experience then I discovered Wim Hof on the Joe Rogan podcast who happened to yep. be coming in and doing a workshop at, at my, my coach's gym back in, I don't know, it was like 2012. Um, and that's where Brian McKenzie and a lot of the early breathwork practitioners started, you know, saying, okay, there's something to this. Now, Wim Hof, he, he was the one that sort of started bringing attention to CO2 tolerance. Um, we didn't know that's what he was doing at the time, but science later, you know, after people started getting really interested in his work, that was like what he was achieving, this really high level of mm. CO2 tolerance with this intermittent hypoxic breath work. Now, going back to like maintaining nasal breathing, I'm starting to like, I'm doing Wim Hof, which is, is very much mouth. It's like hyperventilating basically through the mouth. And yep. my, my intuitive sense at that point was like, I don't know, something doesn't feel optimal. Like 
I shouldn't get done with three rounds of 30 and feel like I need to drink a gallon of water. Um, that's probably <laughs> causing some inflammation, bronchial inflammation. It's probably causing, yeah, I know it's causing dehydration, Constriction probably too, a higher yeah. stress response. Um, and we know that now there's, there's actually some stuff coming out, not related to Wim Hof. I'm not throwing Wim under the bus, but we know now if you do uh, a lot of sympathetic, um, breath work, like hyperventilating breath holds, um, it can possibly cause uh, tinnitus, like ringing in the ears. So um, mm. I sort of intuitively started picking up on like, maybe this is an optimal way of doing it. And that's right when I switched to nasal breathing. So I basically was doing a, a Wim Hof style uh, training, but rather than just doing mouth, I went to nose. Now with that said, I was also trying to incorporate or being mindful of respiration in my cross training, um, in, in, in conditioning in particular. And one thing I noticed, I can remember the first time I got on the rower because a lot of my coach and a lot of other people in my space, um, that the, you know, the ones that are always on the, the cutting edge looking for the next greatest thing. Um, yeah, we were all starting to apply, like performance breath work or breath work to our, our CrossFit workout to our cross training. And I, like I said, I can remember the first time I got on the rower and I tried to just maintain nasal breathing. It was so anxiety provoking. Mm. Like it was literally <laughs> right. like I would take like 10 pulls, like 10 strokes and immediately like, Oh my God. I, oh my God. I don't know if I could do this. So, and now we know that's CO2 tolerance and you can take a simple CO2 tolerance test in our course, but essentially when we, when we're in an, um, in a, an aerobic state, especially like, you know, zone two, three, four, um, our CO2 tolerance, or I'm sorry, our CO2 is going up our exchange. So we're bringing oxygen in the byproduct of oxygen is CO2 that starts to rise in the system. Um, and if you're not used to nasal breathing, like you don't have good airflow, you haven't developed that, those airways yet, like proper breathing mechanics. And most importantly, like the strength, like the, the, the breathing muscles from the scalings, the intercostals, the abdominals, the diaphragm, like all of these muscles can be strengthened just like any other muscle in the body. Um, and mm. that was a big, uh, sort of, um, realization for me, especially yeah. when Mike came out to the recovery den <laughs> here in, in Helena, Montana, when we were like, okay, we got to get cracking. We got to start putting this course together. And we quickly realized, okay, we need to develop a methodology first. Um, and as we develop the methodology, like we're sharing these different experiences, you know, Mike just shared his, his um, mouth taping experience with snoring and sleep. And here I'm like applying mouth taping to my zone training, like um, actually building aerobic capacity while maintaining nasal breathing. And that seems to be the most advantageous for fully, ad uh, fully adopting the closed balance system and being able to maintain nasal breathing at all times. Because if you can maintain nasal breathing in an anaerobic state, um, essentially that the breath becomes a very, very powerful tool. And it's like a, basically your RPM gauge. You can, you can throw away that heart rate meter because you just get so in tune with your breath and, and where that relates to your heart rate. This is what confuses 90% of the people when it comes to oxygen, trying to get more oxygen into the system. In fact, the more you try to get air in, the opposite effects, the less oxygen you will get to your muscles and your tissue. 
The harder you breathe, the less air you're going to get into your muscles and tissues. And most people go, that doesn't make any sense. But the problem is you in that situation, you're hyperventilating. You're breathing hard mm. and you're blowing off tons of carbon dioxide. And when you're blowing off all of that CO2, carbon dioxide literally has to be present in the blood in enough volume for the oxygen from hemoglobin, from the oxygen to, de- to actually detach and go into the system. So, so for all that oxygen to get to all your muscles, vital organs, and all your tissue, you've got to have a presence of CO2 in enough levels. And if you're hyperventilating, you think of a panic attack, right? Someone's like, <gasps> and they're hyperventilating. What are they blowing? They're blowing off all that CO2. They give you a paper bag. And that's why. Yeah, exactly. They give you a paper bag because you're rebreathing CO2. That's all you're actually doing is they're having you rebreathe your CO2. Mm. Um, so it's interesting. It's kind of that similar thing. So CO2 is actually a, a very important part of the process. And so think about it when you're running to the top of a mountain, let's say, and you're hyperventilating and you're fully gassed, if you, I put an SpO2 meter on your finger right now, you'd have probably 95, 97, 98% oxygen saturation. So you got plenty of oxygen, but you've blown off all your CO2. And that's why you think you can't get enough air in, but you're out of balance. And that's the second half of our closed balance system is the balance part is trying to keep a balanced system through these gnarly uh, experiences, endurance things that you're going through. Corey, you wanted to follow up, but that's kind of a... Yeah, it's it's very important. Sense. Like the body always fights to have homeostasis and everything. And one of those is the an even exchange or the the right amount of oxygen in the system and the right amount of CO2. And as Mike said, there has to be a certain amount of CO2 present at the cell in order for oxygen to offload off of hemoglobin. Yeah. So Mike does a demonstration of the Bora effect and the Bora effect is well known um in the free diving community. And it's basically like the body's last ditch effort to, to provide oxygen to the cell. And what's interesting is, is uh, we hook Mike up to a pulse ox meter so we can see oxygen saturation in real time. Um, oh, yeah, he does somewhere, somewhere around an eight minute breath hold, which blew my mind because here I, I was really focusing on capacity um, and a lot of the mechanical aspects of our, our breathing system. And Mike comes along and he's like, Oh yeah, I got an eight minute breath hold. I'm like, well, you, what? <laughs> like where, where did you, and it's a testament because Mike did not have an eight minute breath hold, you know, a couple of years ago, this yeah. was something that through our practice and through our research we've learned is possible. So we have him hooked up to a pulse ox meter. He starts his, you know, his, uh, his breath hold, um, and it's interesting because O2 just plummets. You know, it's just mm-hmm. as soon as he as he starts, it's going down, down, down. And Mike, where did it? I, right around seventy percent. Is that well, where it, it landed? In the, no. in the course, when did fifty? Yeah, or in the course right? because I did it at night. I don't usually do breath work at night. I was just doing it for the sake of video. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a wild ride. And my oxygen saturation drops to fifty five percent or something. Fifty five. And yeah. if you know, and if you know. Uh, uh, at sea level, if your oxygen level drops to 88%, you're on the way to the emergency room. The paramedics are going to take you in. So, you know, you're, you're down to 55. And so that's like a little bit of a roller coaster, but I'm still fine. Uh, but but hmm. go ahead, Corey, and explain what, what happens after that, about the first three or four minutes. Yeah. So about three, four minutes in, what was interesting is the his O2 saturation levels off um, and stops dropping. And then, interestingly enough, it starts to rise. So at 55, 56, 58, 60, 65, 70, and now we're five minutes in. And I haven't taken a breath. Hasn't taken a breath. So this is showing, we're we're showing in real time the Bora effect, which is a clinical 
um, <clears throat> uh, basically a, um, a clinical term that's used uh, for a fi- you know, physiology or a function in the body. And it's basically like that, oh, those oxygen molecules that we're talking about that are circulated on hemoglobin. If oxygen is not like coming into the system, there is that last ditch effort where it'll offload those off that hemoglobin and, and the cells will take it up. And so there's so, that and there's and there's the spleen and the uh, kidneys are all dumping oxygen rich red blood cells. And so you kind of see yeah, in real time, right. the, the body's fully adapting to we have to survive. There's no oxygen. Dump everything you've got. And that that training is then what leads to. Corey, like it, it, right, and and it's interesting because they, you know, as I mentioned in the free diving community, intermittent hypoxic breath work is very, you know, that's that's how we they start building their breath holds, um, and but we also found some literature on angiogenesis. So when you start, you know, oh, practicing yeah. intermittent hypoxic work and and really doing it at the extreme level, it 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 looks like it's it's possible that you can actually have some angiogenesis angiogenesis and and grow some um you know uh basically increase your circulatory system it's building um, so, it's actually building blood cells new blood vessels yeah building more blood cells so you have a better oxygen utilization better oxygen delivery so and i would suspect and hypothesize that that's probably what's going on with um in the himalayas with you know um, Sherpas and people that are living in that type of environment, I, I would imagine yeah. they probably have like the gnarliest circulatory systems yeah, through angiogenesis, nitric oxide, all that stuff. And we're ending it off here with Tony Robinson's answer to the definition of awesome. Being able to wake up every day and operate in your area of passion and expertise and financial potential. Right. And I add that financial potential because so many people, I think, you know, they, they just want to chase their passions. But, you know, if your passion is to, you know, something that, that doesn't allow you to provide for your family, there's a certain level of stress that comes along with that. So if you can find that blend of doing something that you genuinely enjoy, surrounded by people that you love doing it with, and you're able to find the financial success that you've been looking for, that's that's awesome. Thank you guys so very much for tuning in again for 200 episodes. Uh, I honestly, yeah, I'm just super proud, super excited, and very, very thankful and grateful for all of you listening. And again, if you guys got any value out of this, please, if you could share this with someone, if you could leave us a rating and review if you haven't done so. For those of you that have, thank you so very much. I read them all and again, greatly appreciated. As always, I am Nick Troutman signing off, wishing you all a truly awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.